0: The Culture Guy Podcast, with Christian, The Culture Guy, and with the episode about the automotive world. everybody this is Christian the culture Guy and this is the Culture Guy podcast Today I have a guest that has spent three decades more than three decades of his professional life in the car industry and in the automotive world. His name is Tim Mahoney and he's joining us today from his home in Detroit Michigan and he's got a lot of stories how well marketing automotive products marketing cars is Fraught with some challenges as you do that internationally across the globe. He was the chief marketing officer for General Motors before he went into retirement. So he sold Chevys and other General Motors brands. He spent 20 years with Subaru. He spent seven years at Porsche, a year at Volkswagen, and I guess six and a half years now at General Motors before he retired. So this man has sold cars in the U.S., in japan in germany and around the world for these internationally renowned brands so today i am happy to be joined by tim mahoney listen to what his story is so i'm here today with timothy mahoney or as he just informed me earlier he would like to be called tim because timothy is what his mom called him when he was in trouble were you in trouble often tim
1: no i was a good son Absolutely. Of course course you were. So, but of course, I occasionally, I would hear the word Timothy. So not perfect,
0: but we won't use that anymore. So Tim, welcome on the culture guy podcast. Thank you for taking time. And your, our audience already knows you're an automotive guy. So you've been around the world selling cars. Is that what you did? Or how would you describe what a CMO, a chief marketing officer does for an automotive company?
1: No, I think, I think that's an absolutely accurate description. Um, would tell people I sell cars and the first question is like what dealership and I so then I sort of like no I was actually the CMO and then CMO is kind of a hard hard thing to explain but um, it, it, it is really leading all the sort of the, the marketing and the branding and the product um, uh, around a company and so it, it, it is selling cars in reality I, yeah. I would like to think we're more in the demand creation side of the business
0: so when people have an emotional reaction to an automotive brand is either because they drive a car and they either like it or don't like it. They see commercials for cars either on TV, on the internet or in print or anywhere else. And you are, you and your team, you are behind or were behind those brand identities. Would that be fair to say?
1: Yeah, it's absolutely fair to say. I think um, consumers when they buy anything, in this case automotive, have a number of considerations, uh, and I think, unfortunately, in automotive, too much of it is around the economic. There's economic, there's rational, and there's emotional. And I think sometimes in in in, in automotive marketing, we forget about the emotional aspect and the exhilaration it feels like of having personal freedom through 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 transportation. But mm-hmm. there's a very much a, a rational component, and and definitely there's an economic. And if you turn on the TV, that's what you see all the time. It's this sales event this month or whatever, they're making a whole lot of these things up.
0: Now, I noticed something that that really stood out to me the first time I moved to the United States from Europe is that your uh, European, especially German marketing when it comes to a product like a car is almost 180 degrees different than from the way it is done in North America. In in North America, one of the old sales axioms is facts tell and stories sell. So there's mm-hmm. this storytelling aspect that you see in, in in North American marketing much more so than you did at least when I grew up in the eighties and nineties in Germany. Now it has shifted a little bit, but it, it's not as data heavy Or, or, or here are the specs and this is why it's so greatly engineered and you need to buy this product because it's the best engineered product you could possibly get for this money. It's more like, Hey, this is, this is the emotion you will have using our product. This is how you will feel. This is what you will look like. This is what it will sound like if you use our product. So I know you worked for American car manufacturers, you worked for Japanese manufacturers, you worked for German manufacturers, and you were selling these products not only in those respective markets, you were selling them at some point on a global level. So your storytelling, I would assume, had to adjust to these different markets, did it not?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's funny, um, an example from Porsche about kind of the German mentality versus let's say the U.S. mentality. All you have to do is lay a, a, a product brochure from the U.S. side by side with the German one. <clears throat> the U.S. was soft bound; it was it was it was pretty light on facts and figures. It was a lot of beautiful pictures of environments where you could project where where you want to live or where you want to go with a vehicle. The German one was hard cover and about three times as thick. It was like going to a bookstore and buying everything you'd wanted to know about the product. And for me, that was always interesting. Now, the, the folks in Stuttgart were sensitive enough to say, okay, you know what? Each market operates a little bit differently. But I think one of the kind of guideposts that we had, was this experiment, I think, to move across cultures was this idea of human stories simply told. If you tell a human story and and can interject your product in a kind of um, meaningful way, uh and you tell it simply, people will get it. And that tends to travel, I think, from culture to culture. And it can get you out of a lot of trouble uh if you get too too fussy and and too sort of self-absorbed. You you put the customer in and you say, Okay, we're all human, we all have these sort of basic needs and and wants and desires. And can we now tell a story around our product in that respective culture?
0: I love that you it down to four words: human stories, simply told. I had to make a actually a written note on my notepad while you were saying, yes yeah. um, because this relates to what we often do in in our in our training programs with our clients. Um, the the Maslow's pyramid of needs always comes up. It's and not by us. It's typically by our clients who we say, well. Aren't all humans the same? Don't they all want the same things? Look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs and there's food and shelter safety on the bottom um, and there's self-actualization on the top and essentially yeah. we all want the same thing, don't we? So how hard, why, why should we talk too much about culture? And my answer is typically because culture is the way we walk to the top of the mountain and there is more than one way to get to it. So you're, or to the top of the pyramid. So your, your human story is simply told. It has to, I guess, be told from different perspectives or on, on different story paths, depending on what culture you want to engage with. Isn't that right?
1: Yeah, it is. It's absolutely. So that, that sort of those four words is, it, were kind of one of the things that we always, or I always sort of kept in my mind. Um, the other one was this notion of, of glocalization. Uh, and this was a strategy that we had, particularly um, in the most recent role uh, at General Motors, because again, we were operating in 140 different countries. We needed to make sure that each respective market knew what the brand stood for, what the brand values were, what the personality of the brand was. But we couldn't make one ad for the world. I mean, for me, the worst advertising is when you travel internationally and you turn on CNN International and you watch these commercials like. Malaysia truly Asia like what the hell does that really mean, right? So this idea of having a consistent global strategy But allowing for local relevance local insights, you know in terms of how how they've done it Mm -hmm. we're um, one of the last sort of uh, iterations uh, That we were rolling out and they're now continuing it For for the Chevrolet brand um, It's the search engine for real life in other words search engine Uh, The original search engine was your car, or you could say in olden times, maybe getting out there. But fundamentally, the car was the thing that got you out to experience life. Now you can experience your life through this iPad that I'm talking to you on or whatever. But for real life, for real life experiences, you actually have to go and feel it. And so this is sort of a, a... an idea that we're, we're, we're taking globally. But the markets themselves are finding ways. So the, the work in Mexico has a familiarity and a comfort level with the work that's going on in China, but it's totally different in some ways because it, 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 it is um, adapted for, for what the, those markets know about their respective consumers and everything. And it's and it and generally it comes back to this idea of a human story very
0: sort of very simply told. So when, when you were in your roles in, in as the head of marketing departments of the, these globally renowned brands, was there already an awareness at, at the C-suite that they had to tell different stories for different markets? Or was this something that you had to fight for and actually get budget for? Because if you wanna tell different stories, it's gonna cost you more money, right? Yeah. So how, how, how did that develop? Or was that, was that different from manufacturer to manufacturer? How, how was your experience?
1: No, I think um, I think a little bit different manufacturer to manufacturer. Um, I would put the two German brands on one side of the spectrum, and the the Japanese and the and the American brands a little bit on the other side. And not that it's a particularly wide, you know, mm-hmm. spectrum that you would traverse, but the Germans were a bit more prescriptive in terms of how you brought the brand to life in those markets, and they were, of course, looking for efficiency and things like that. So. Producing, maybe you know there, there's a pretty famous spot um, for VW, which was Darth Vader spot where kid and, 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 um, and they used the Imperial March and everything. That ultimately, essentially unchanged, rolled out to uh, probably a hundred countries around the world. But fundamentally, the German German way was a bit more. Uh, Prescriptive, I guess, is probably the right way to say it. the The U.S. and the Japanese were a, a little bit sort of looser in that. And to answer your question, it, it, it quite often always does come down to money and where the money sits in everything. We had sort of guidelines about the right levels of investment for each market, and and just like any business, they 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 would in some ways produce their their own work. They did produce their own work, and so you could argue it's it's um, it's less efficient if you're just looking at the dollars, but I would argue it's more effective. And I, and I go back to my CNN international example of TV spots that you see at two in the morning when you're jet lagged. everybody understands them. You do nothing to kind of capture your heart and make you think, hmm, I want to go to Malaysia now, all of a sudden, because mm-hmm. I've seen, you know, it, you have to have something that really, I think, connects with people, so, um, that, yeah.
0: So- what i found interesting because you worked for for a global brand like volkswagen um for so long that the the, the brand perception in the us had changed and that that darth vader spot i think in my opinion did a lot for for the the final exclamation mark behind the um that, that brand perception change because in the us the volkswagen for for almost a generation and a half was viewed as this hippie brand. They had the Beetle yep. and then the, the bus or as the Germans called the bully, which was yep. this, this Southern California surfer surfboard, love, peace, yep. happiness vehicle, um, simply engineered, reliable and, and you like almost a blank canvas and you can paint on it, whatever you want. And it had, it had a, a very positive emotional response, especially for the baby boomer generation. And then Volkswagen kind of, lost, I don't want to say they went away, but their market share dipped and, and mm-hmm. the automotive market shifted a little bit and Volkswagen wasn't able to catch or keep up with that in the US. And then they built a plant in Chattanooga, developed a car specifically designed for the US market. And it was accompanied, for example, by the Darth Vader spot, which gave the whole brand a new Emotional story. It's it's a new human story, simply told. So, is, yep. was that part of 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 your work, where were you actually tasked with these things, or was this a strategic decision that you brought to senior leadership and say, we need to change the perception of how the market
1: views us? You know, I think there 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 existed, it still might exist. I've been away now from VW for over six years, but there was a tension between the. the Folks in Wolfsburg and the people in the U.S. and mention was as you as you just expressed, the Germans felt that that the North American people were sort of living in the past in '60s and Love Bug and all of that all of that kind of place where there's a whole level of pride, uh, and it wasn't that the Americans weren't proud of VW. I mean, they they, they love the brand, but it, there was a more of a pride around engineering, right, and, and excellence and really craftsmanship um, and so Passat gave us that chance actually to kind of hit reset a little bit uh, and it, 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 it was the start of a pretty good run until unfortunately the whole diesel thing kind of erupted and I was gone by then but um, it, it, was a, it was a moment and kind of a fun story that the Darth Vader spot was the preferred spot. They ran two on the Super Bowl that year and it was not the one that everyone thought was gonna knock it out of the park. The other one was this Beetle. It was a lot heavily sort of CGI, and it was, you know? And so they, they ran the, uh, two commercials for essentially two products that were coming back into the market. Passat had been out for about a year. They had, had paused, wound things down, built the Chattanooga factory, and then and, and this was gonna be the big push. And Beetle, of course, was entering its sort of third Third gener- major generational change um, with, with the current one. And so, like everyone was sort of like the Beatles, the one, and it, and it was a surprise in some ways. The, the other thing they did is they released them ahead of the Super Bowl, which, from a marketing perspective, um, Super Bowl advertising was a little bit like Christmas. You opened it on December 25th and you didn't open it before. BW actually launched uh, about a week or 10 days before. And I think in the back people counted YouTube views and shares and stuff like that this thing just literally exploded um, mm. around that time and that was right when I was transitioning so I didn't create the, 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 um, the Vader spot I had the unenviable task of trying to figure out what you do the year after right which is always much more mm. difficult when when you have a big success but um, yeah it was it was an interesting time and it did shift the perception of the brand quite significantly
0: now, let me shift gears to, to yep. remain in an automotive metaphor, if we can. Yeah. Um, you, for your profession, you also had to leave your native culture. your you, you used uh, your comfort zone or your familiar zone. And I know you lived in, in Germany and you studied in mm-hmm. Austria. You lived in Japan. Um, what was your first experience of working and living outside of the United States? Where, where did that take you?
1: Well, living and working were two different things. So, living obviously was was going to Germany, uh, uh, exchange student in the seventies. Uh, working, um, I think it's fair to say, it was more the, the 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 bumping up, if you will, culturally across these other markets. And that was when I started with the Japanese with Subaru uh, earlier in my career. So, going to to Tokyo and things like that. Um, a lot of travel, a lot of international coordination. You know, as times when I so when I was with Porsche, that's when it really started to expand even wider, right? Um, And we'd have these meetings and it felt like sometimes on a good day, it felt like the United Nations and on the bad days, it felt like the Tower of Babel, right? I mean, because you had all these markets with, uh, you know, uh, uh, everyone sort of having a voice and they actually, they modeled kind of the, the guidance system, if you will, from a brand perspective, off the UN, there was, there was the, the General Assembly where every market came from Belgium to all these other really smaller markets. And then there was kind of the Council, which was strategic markets like like Germany and the US and, and China and things like that. But um, it, the, the, sort of the first dip into things uh, was when I went, was an exchange student in the 70s uh, in, in Germany and Austria cultural, er, and, and then in terms of work life, it, w- it was really when I stepped my toe into it with the, with the Japanese.
0: And what was most difficult for you in terms of adjusting? What, what, were there ever a moment when, when you did that for the first time that you stood in front of that wall or when it hit you like a, a wall of bricks? I, I remember vividly when, when that happened to me as an exchange student, so I'm always curious how, yeah. how this experience was for others.
1: Yeah, I, I went with a program um, that was pretty good, and of course, I read all the stuff going into it. I, I think what, what happened on the, on the exchange student side was, like any new experience, living in a culture, um, a foreign culture, different culture than your home culture, is it's, it's exhilarating. And so um, when I went to Germany in 75, in I lived in a university town in Göttingen up north but it was a town it was, it was actually it was a city you know and so i did 2 months there with the Goethe institute and then and then we moved to bavaria and i was telling you earlier we, we moved south of munich and i'm in this little village literally you know and so it hit me there uh it it hit 2 months after um, i was living there because the fascination and the excitement of things being different uh and maybe it was a combination of living in this small village mm. became more of a frustration, right? And and there, there, they've they sort of prepared us for different kinds of personas that you might take, right? One is, I hate this culture. I really hate it. And it's stupid and, and I want to go back to America. That's the one extreme. The other one was, um, Oh, I love this! I hate my home country. I'm never going to go back. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna be German forever or or Austrian forever. I was a bit more, and I think it was more oriented to the to the um, the first example. I think partially because. I'm a city kid, right? I'm, I'm living in downtown Detroit. I grew up outside of Philadelphia. So I was always used to access to more things. And so right. living in this kind of sleepy village, I remember I'd hear the cows going down through the street in the morning with the bells and everything. And, you know, and it was, it was, it was a very different thing. When I got to Vienna, uh, then I was totally in my element and and I had passed through that moment. And if I needed grocery and I could go to a coffee shop and everything so and and then I kind of swung the other way on the spectrum and so and towards the end of the thing I actually considered staying uh, and I only came home early that summer because it was the bicentennial and I thought well that only happens once and it only happens every hundred years so I came back to the U.S. Uh, for that particular summer but it, it, it is interesting um, you, you, you go through this phase of generally speaking I think excitement and fascination and maybe love for something new if you if you're kind of a, a person that's interested in that but then it, then then you hit this moment where it's like oh what so, have i done
0: so in your case and I, I like the way that you 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 framed this so it was your city kid you grew up in, in in urban areas and and Göttingen was still okay because it was still somewhat of a big secret. enough um yeah. big, big enough yeah it worked um but then going to the southern bavarian village um and you share with me where that was. We're, we're not going to poo-poo the village because we, we both love it now. Um, but the, I, village, the village is beautiful. And I, I know exactly because I, I, that's close to where I grew up. So I'm, I'm, I'm fairly familiar with the area. And it, it can be hard if you're a city slicker, no matter where you're from. Um, yeah. the, villi- the village folk will not embrace you right away. They're, they're a really tough, hard coconut to crack. And yeah coming in as in a, a big city American peach didn't help, I guess. Exactly so, right. so for you, it was easier to to find your way to adjust better in, in a more urban setting. So it's not always the, the national culture that throws people for a loop. It's the the context. It's, is it urban? Is it rural? Uh, we worked with a client from a fairly rural part of Bavaria, Southern, Southeastern Germany, and they yeah. set up shop in a rural area of Tennessee and, I made a prediction to their team as because we 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 worked with them for for years, or we continue to work with them, and and, and they were a little bit apprehensive about that transition. How is that going to work, and how are are U.S. folks going to gel with the Germans and vice versa? I said, well, keep in mind, you're both from a very or fairly rural, non-urban settings. So this is your common denominator. Let's, let's focus on what you have in common first before we get hung up on your differences. And, and sure enough, the, we trained more than a hundred, um, Tennesseans who were sent on assignment in Bavaria and they were gone for six to 12 months. And I'd say eight out of 10 of the guys, and these were predominantly men, eight out of 10 of them came back with a set of lederhosen and Bavarian traditional garb. Like, yep. And not, not because they found that to be a costume where they found this, Hey, we, I got to show to my relatives how silly these Bavarians are. No, they came back with it because they said, Hey, this is what represents that culture that I lived in for X amount of time. And I respect that. And I want a piece of that to carry home with me. So yep. the commonality piece worked like a charm. And, and it's, not, it's not always the national culture or the language that is the determining factor. It may just be the, the context in which people live with each other.
1: I agree, completely agree. And, and that's what I found to be true. Um, and, um, and that's generally the same. When I would go to Japan, I love Tokyo. I mean, one of probably my favorite cities in the world. And our factory was in a, in a small town, probably an hour and a half north. And it was the same thing when i was there i was like oh my god you know these this tiny tiny you know japanese village and i appreciated the culture right and it's sort of like when i moved to bavaria i I really liked the the place that i lived in was spectacular i mean i had a balcony and i'd look out the lake would be there and you could see the alps and everything it was really really beautiful but it's the i don't know if it's the right word is the energy but the, the 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 context of everything of having all this stuff going on was totally absent so I've been in that a couple of different times where it just, you know. And so I the good part is I know what I like. You know, so yeah. That's yeah. Cool.
0: so I I remember you 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 told me in a conversation that we had before we started the recording that you I don't want to say you made a big mistake but you 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 framed it as as a cultural misunderstanding when you worked at Subaru and you you yeah. guys were producing a Was it a commercial spot that you did that, that didn't sit well with a Japanese senior? So can, can you elaborate on that real quick?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'll try and tell it kind of in a a more concise way, but we were, we were launching a campaign for the Subaru brand in the U S called love. It's what makes a Subaru super. And we were trying to bring to life the love that customers felt for their product. And there was this one particular commercial and it, 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 the origins were in, in in real life a real place. There's this place in the in the north central part of the U.S. I think, as I was saying, I think it's Minnesota, called Subaru Heaven, where they would take Subaru owners would take their 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 cars, they in ways were not dead, but based to to. to finish out the, the rest of their life up on this mountaintop. And um, so we, we did this with the launch of the campaign and the launch of the third generation Forester. And this young, as we would say now, I don't know how long people have been using the word hipster, but this young hipster had an old, really, really old Subaru Forester. And he was taking it to Subaru Heaven for its its final rest. And a buddy of his was driving his brand new Forester behind him because he was in love with the first one, so he, of course he got the next one, and um, and and that was essentially the gist of the spot. It conveyed the love for the brand, it conveyed the durability of the brand, all these wonderful things. And it, for me, because it was sort of based in reality that there is a real place called this, perfect. The Japanese massive, and I reported to a Japanese chairman who became really, really a dear friend. And he explained to me one time. Uh, in his office, we would get together once a week on Friday mornings and have coffee or tea or whatever. Uh, why Why this caused discomfort? And he explained that during the war, particularly at the end of the war, uh, World War II, that, that food and, and, and shortages were pretty dire back in the home market. And so the older people would go up on the mountains and basically jump off, you know. Commit suicide. Commit suicide. So that there would be, so that they would be consuming less food, so that there would be more for the others, and um, and so he told me that, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, I didn't realize, you know, again, it, it kind of, it, maybe it's less cultural, although in some ways it is cultural because that's sort of the Japanese mentality that it's good. for the larger team, right? Yeah, but also- a
0: scary an aspect that that would never happen in in, in Anglo-Saxon culture. No the individual would not sacrifice their own life for the for the common good, for the no. for, for the sake of the group, and and Japanese culture is That's very exactly really right. important that they, at least back in those days, they would sacrifice their own lives because they thought they had at least completed the run almost. So they ended the race maybe yep. a little
1: prematurely in order to so the next them. generation. Yeah. could come Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I really enjoyed, I, I think, you know, I started really my automotive career with the Japanese. Um, so in terms of, and it's very sort of similar to my sort of style. I think I don't say I think like a Japanese, but they, they there was a there was a trust there, and and so we we ran the spot, and and it was well liked and everything. It was a part of a package of three commercials launching this whole thing, but uh, they it, it 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 went extremely well, and they they allowed it to go forward.
0: So even though the senior executive had an emotional discomfort around the whole idea the company still gave you a green light and said, thumbs up, run it. So how did, you, yep. how did you win, quote unquote, win that conversation? They could have
1: also nixed it. So what did you do in order to, to make it work? Yeah, they, they could, that really wasn't the way. It's interesting if I compare, let's say, and, and I'm generalizing, which is never a good thing, but let's say the German business culture versus the Japanese business culture. You know, my ancestors are from Germany, right? And, we as Germans, uh, or we as, as certainly Western Europeans, we look alike, right? So they think they know everything about us, right? They mm-hmm. they know how we think and what we should do and whatever. The Japanese completely acknowledge that they come almost from another planet, and so they, at the end of the day, they'll almost they tended almost always to defer to our judgment, right? Because they're like this is what we're paying you for in the market. They were just trying to educate me which was greatly appreciated in some of the sensitivities perhaps cultural more sort of historical reference why this was uncomfortable for them and they basically like you know what nobody in the u.s is going to know how this is mm. interpreted you know you know so that they allowed to do it and and it it's like i think a lot of times when you friendships relationships it is building up this level of trust where you can you can trust one another. You might not always agree, but it but it allows you sort of to move forward. And so they and they, they,
0: did. they had the behavioral, the cultural flexibility to allow that to happen, even though it felt a bit yes. uncomfortable for them, but they they saw the the roi the marketing roi yeah. on the horizon so, okay these yeah. we hire these folks yeah. because they know what they're doing in this market and yeah. we don't yeah. so let's just bite the yeah. bullet and do it
1: yeah. okay. i think intellectually they understood that they understood what we were trying to do emotionally it was a little bit uncomfortable for them and i think yeah. we, you know as we said there's 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 these different levers that you can push in marketing there's economics there's rational there's emotional the rational piece they understood mm. The the the, the, the emotional was a little bit harder for them to kind of get their arms around. But yeah. they were wise enough, uh, you know? And it's funny, it's a completely different, maybe a, a side story with Porsche. Um, I remember we did a print ad of a 911, and the headline said, absolutely wrong for so, so many people. In other words, this this kind of car is a performance machine, and... Not, it's not a toy, right? Not to be taken lightly. Mm-hmm. And the Germans just went nuts because it was, I guess you could say, elitist or, you know, not socially kind of relevant or whatever. So we had a big argument about that. And um, I'm trying to remember if we won that battle. For some reason, I think we did, but there was a massive sort of like... Yeah, but moment. that's
0: also a great example for German-American cultural differences yep. because in, in the US, it's perfectly okay to paint a elitist picture or um, to stand yep. out from the crowd yep. because a high degree of individualism is, is expected and actually fostered. In Germany, yep. to, to, uh, to stand out from the crowd too much is frowned upon. I remember... Yep. Dealerships still offer this. If you buy a big uh, or a top model BMW, Mercedes, whatever, where there are different variants of that model, uh, people who buy the most expensive version often ask. They take the badging off, right? They take the, badging, for, off, right? yeah, they take the yes. badging off so my neighbors yeah. don't see how much I paid for it, right? And yep. And a quick, quick personal story from on my end because we, Tim and I, we talked about this earlier. I come from a family of butchers, or my dad was a butcher. We had a small town butcher shop, and. Tim, you'll, you'll tell our audience that, that that's the field you'd like to go into next. Yeah. <laughs> um, but my dad was a, a Porsche, has been, my, my father has been a Porsche fanatic ever since I was a little boy. So there were times when my father owned a Porsche 911. And that was frowned upon in the small town that I grew up in because a butcher, a somebody who works with their hands and creates food or makes food and has a... Uh, uh, an honest, robust profession doesn't drive yep. such an extravagant vehicle. Joey, Joey by, the, yep. by the way, how does this guy who sells meat and sausages how can he afford to buy a Porsche? What's wrong with the product? Question mark. So all of these. Yep. connotation associations were brought up. And I, as a, as a teenager, had to fight that in school because they nicknamed me after that. They called me the Turbo Butcher because my dad drove a 911 right. Turbo. So, And that was not because they admired me because my dad drove a Porsche. This was more like, you guys, what's going yeah. on with you guys? So yeah. yeah, different perception of, of
1: yeah.
0: wealth or, or how an individual can express
1: their individuality. You know, I think I think in the in the and you're absolutely right in an example of, and in that example I think we ultimately ran this ran the, the print ad be, because I I used the architecture of the brand against them. And so I won on a rational argument with them. And the Porsche brand sits if you will on sort of three pillars: design, performance, and exclusivity. So not really arrogance, but the fact that it's not for everyone. Mm-hmm. And so I said, okay, here, here it is. Beautiful shot of the car, right? You know, so the design was there. It talked a lot about the performance and the and the horsepower, whatever. And the last piece was exclusivity. So so wrong for so many people, right? It's it's not a, you know. And so they're like, oh, okay, go with it. You know, so,
0: we did. Excellent, excellent case in point. Again, this is what we teach our clients. It, to win an argument or to to win the debate with uh, somebody who speaks German, who's of a German culture, yeah. you you don't win it with the emotionality. You right. win it with the facts, with the data. You brought the facts. You did the the rational dialectic. I, I connected the, the dots facts. for them. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Yep. Excellent. <laughs> T- Timothy Sun, um, going back to to your Japanese Japan. experience. Um, The last question I want to ask you is if if you, I mean, you're now retired, you've, you spent what, 200 years in in the automotive industry. Now, 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 now that you're looking for your new adventure, uh, with all the experience you were able to, to gather throughout your career, what is it you would advise somebody who's crossing cultures professionally or for personal reasons for the first time? What are, what are some of the things you would like to give them as they, go on that path
1: yeah I, I think um two two of them um if i'm allowed to yes, uh, and i think you need i think you need to use them together uh, and and the first one is curiosity right um almost curiosity without judgment basically moving into a culture and 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 digging in and investigating and and um and, and, and really placing yourself into it. And I think curiosity, not just when you cross culture, I mean, that's the interesting thing As I transition from, from you know, 35, 40 years of working now into, into the next next phase. You don't want to give that up, right? That's what keeps you interesting and interested uh, in, in what's going on in the world around you. The problem with that, though, by itself is you can get in a lot of trouble, right? I mean, because you can just, you're... What, what's the old expression curiosity killed the cat right you know you can you can go too far so the other one is something that that my grandmother always said which is you were born with two eyes two ears in the mouth and you should use or your you should use them in that proportion in other words listen look and don't talk too much right you know so that kind of keeps you from straying too far into the the crazy sort of Oh, um, that sounds really interesting the curiosity end of the spectrum. But I think both of those are pretty good um, guidelines. And, you know, this Japanese chairman and I became, like I said, really close. And, you know, his whole thing is never say something's bad, especially when you're talking about cultural stuff. Nothing's bad or good. It's just different. Right. And so you don't you don't place a value judgment on it because you don't have the context. You don't know where that that's come from. So those kinds of things have sort of helped me navigate a pretty good career, you know, uh, across the automotive spectrum.
0: Nice. Timothy, thank you. Those are great insights because they I, I would perfectly second all of that. Um, yep. Before I let you go, uh, I want to share with the audience your, your, your newfound passion or you're, <laughs> I'm not sure if it's newfound, or you, you're now taking time for that passion. You told me yeah. that you, you're kind of a foodie, and and yep. that you took a, what was it, a working vacation, and you went to culinary school, so that is one big leap, I love that. So you went from marketing uh, a very cerebral engineer project—a product, and now you're in the food business, tell me about it
1: yeah I think you know i I would say I stopped making powerpoints and start making sausages right you know yes. and so um it's it's much more satisfying um and it it started as a started as a slippery slope if you will of, of a hobby um two two plus years ago three plus years ago, my wife and I went to Germany. um around Thanksgiving time into early December, and she wanted to go to the Christmas markets and had never been. And of course, for me, it was like, okay, that's fine, we'll go, I had been a lot. But we, we wound up, and she was eating a lot of the sausages and the meats and whatever, and I'm trying to, you know, I, I was already thinking about, okay, what do I want to do after, after I finish my sort of corporate career? So we stayed in different places. And a friend of mine uh, from Berlin, his grandfather was a butcher in, in the Harz Mountains. And so he, I got that story. And then we stayed with a friend north of Frankfurt and he, his his neighbor was a butcher and whatever. So it started this slippery slope where our, we came back and, and, and Chris was like, what do you want for Christmas? And I said, we just have this amazing vacation, but I'd like a book on sausage making and I'd like a grinder to fit on the Kitchen KitchenAid, right? So that I can maybe do it. So it's, and then I found the local sort of restaurant supply. So I've I got a meat slicer over there. I, I, this past spring, I built a curing cabinet in the basement, which simulates what it would be like in a cave. It's the right humidity and everything. So it's just been this sort of journey. So if, if any of your listeners are butchers, uh, reach out to me through Christian. You
0: know, it was, <laughs> we'll, it, was, it uh, is a uh,
1: hobby. And I, I'd like to go to Germany next year, actually, and, and, and study uh, as, as kind of the, probably the world's oldest intern uh, for a few months uh, in a butcher shop and, and really see, because my daughter's like, Dad, you've worked hard. You should just do this as a hobby and nothing more. So I need to kind of decide if, at recently turned to age 63, I, I, I want to really start a whole new career or I just pursue a passion. But right now it's a passion.
0: Lovely. I'll, I'll I'll hook you up with my dad. He'll he'll be happy to yeah. talk shop with you. <laughs>
1: okay. But he can't speak, he can't speak in a Bavarian dialect. It has to be Hochdeutsch otherwise I'll be like
0: Yeah, oh. that's got, that's going to be a challenge. But <laughs> I, I, I I can, I can translate. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll figure it out somehow. Timmy, All right, sounds you, good. Thank you so much for being on. This was Tim. the Culture Guy podcast. Tim, of course. Yeah, unless I'm in trouble. Um, Gottes Willen, I don't want to become your mom. So, Tim, Uh, thank you. Thank you for taking time. Thanks for being on the Culture Guy podcast. And um, good luck on your culinary
1: journeys. All right. Thanks so much. All the best to you.
0: Tim Mahoney, the auto marketing maven, turned butcher, turned sausage maker. That's the story. Love love the stories he shared, the human stories simply told. Lots of lessons to be learned from this. Check him out on LinkedIn. I post the link to his profile in the show notes. Follow us on Twitter. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Find us on Instagram. Of course, there's always the good old Facebook a stranger. Give us your comments, suggestions, questions, and maybe you'll be the next guest on this program. The Culture Guy is out for now. Enjoy the music.